in, if you're using the Pew Bible in front of you. Before I read this passage, why don't I offer a quick prayer for its reading, and also because I irresponsibly forgot to pray for Ike Vanderheiden, and I remembered it right after we finished our prayer, and, and Ike is still uh, needing our prayers, and we want to lift him and his needs and his family up in this hour. So uh, let's pray one more time before we turn to God's Word. Father, we come before you, ask that you would bless this time as we gather around your Word, these Words are living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. And Father, we thank you that through it you establish a kingdom that will know no end, a kingdom which is the center of our hopes and the center of our faith. Father, we hold this with, with great wonder and thankfulness. We pray for our brother Ike Vanderheiden, who continues to, to battle in the hospital. We thank you that he has made a turn in the last couple days, we pray that this progress would continue. Comfort him and his family, administer healing to him, even now, even in this hour. Bless him as he is away from us today. In Christ's name, amen. Luke 8, the parable of the sower. This is God's word. Please give your attention to his reading. Luke 8, verse 1. After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, Proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God, the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases, Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out, Joanna, the wife of Cusa, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. While a large crowd was gathering and people were coming to Jesus from, uh, from town after town, he told this parable. A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path. It was trampled on, and the birds of the air ate it up. Some fell on the rock, and when it came up, the plants withered because they had no moisture. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up with it and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up and yielded a crop, a hundred times more than was sown. When he said this, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. His disciples asked him what this parable meant. He said, The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to others I speak in parables, so that, though seeing they may not see, though hearing they may not understand. This is the meaning of the parable. The seed is the word of God. Those along the path are the ones who hear, and then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts, so that they may not believe and be saved. Those on the rock are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it, but they have no root. They believe for a while, but in the time of testing, they fall away. The seed that fell among the thorns stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures, and they do not mature. But the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering, produce a crop. The grass withers and the flower fades. God's word endures forever. Amen.
Well, perhaps many of you remember how, how famous the cover illustrations and paintings of the Saturday Evening Post were, the ones that were painted by uh, mostly Norman Rockwell, many famous paintings. And there's one that I was thinking about this week that's called Saying Grace. And in this illustration, there is an elderly woman and a young boy. And they're in a diner. They're sharing a table with two young men. And they don't seem to be there in the diner with them, but they're just sharing a table. And this elderly woman and this young boy are praying together, praying together in the midst of this diner. And the two young men sitting at the same table are looking at them seemingly with half-critical and half-wondering eyes, as if to express surprise by saying, it, it startles me that these people would be doing this, praying in the midst of this diner. And critical in the sense that they maybe would say, aren't there many other things that would be grabbing your attention right now that would prevent you from praying to some God? What is it that makes you do this? Why do you seem so committed to this practice? This painting beautifully captures, for me anyways, how the world can look at the faithful and find it to be pointless, meaningless. Why do you do what you do? Perhaps if many people could see what we are doing now, gathering around the word of God, sitting under its preaching, perhaps their questioning would be even more critical. Why do you subject yourself to this? Why indeed? What is it about God's word that makes faithful Christians so dependent upon it? We have one of the clearest instances of an answer to this question in this passage here today. We see that through this parable, this very famous parable, really uh, one of the most famous because it's in all three of the synoptic gospels and provides a bit of a foundation for understanding all other parables, what we see is that it is the word of God that accomplishes the eternal purposes of salvation. God works through his word and it is God working through this word that accomplishes the eternal purposes of salvation. It's activity of God through humble means, right? Just like in that painting, the elderly woman, the young boy, praying in a diner. God's activity is found through humble means. But God wants the citizens of his kingdom to know. Jesus wants his followers to know that it is the word of God preached, spread about throughout the world, which brings forth and and nurtures our faith. That is what he is saying in this parable. The result of Jesus' teaching is that we are to treasure the Word of God at all times. Treasure the Word of God. We also are to trust that God is working through it. Trust that God is working through His Word, proclaimed and taught. And we are to trust all of that in times of both tranquility and testing. In times of tranquility and testing. So then here at the beginning of the passage, what we see is that this wondrous kingdom of God, which Jesus continues to preach and proclaim, is a kingdom for anyone. It's a kingdom for anyone. There are a few verses here at the beginning of the passage which give a little bit of an explanation of what Jesus is doing, continuing to go from town to town. It's not only the twelve that are with Jesus, though, is it? Luke tells us that there are women as well who have begun following Jesus and have become disciples of him. This is typical of Luke. He often is pointing us to the fact that Jesus was one who would welcome those who were on 
the margins of society. And back then, of course, women were lower on the social ladder than men. And so Luke goes out of his way just as he tells us that Jesus was one who would go and minister to outcasts, to the poor, to those who were considered sinners. Jesus feels no tension in welcoming women to be a part of the people who are following him, to be a part of the people who are listening to his teaching. The kingdom of God is not a club for the elite. It's a kingdom for anyone. These women are granted full disciple status. They are described, just like the twelve, as being with Jesus. And Jesus, there's no hint that he dismisses them when it's time for teaching. Actually, in Israel, that was a little bit of the culture. The the women uh, did not learn the Torah as much as men. It was thought to be uh, fruitless to involve women in that kind of teaching. But the women here are sitting under the teaching of Jesus. These women will not become apostles. They will not become elders or deacons in the Jerusalem church. But Jesus gives them a place of honor that is rooted in the idea that they are endowed with dignity by their creator, created by God, just like any man. And they have a right and a privilege to grow in the knowledge of the kingdom. Beautiful reminders for us. The Bible, doctrine, teaching are all for women as well as men. But in the midst of this, and we see this is, would be revolutionary at that time in the world, and in today's world, people often think that in terms of men and women relationships and gender roles, the church is really archaic and old-fashioned. But what's so beautiful about what Jesus does, right, is that Jesus does not feel the need to make the women feel like they need to act more like men. He affirms their dignity and who they are as women. He gives them purpose and meaning in what they can contribute to the community. There were women here that had financial resources and had the ability to support Jesus and the Twelve in their ministry. They were benefactors of Jesus' ministry. There was a woman here that was connected to King Herod's administration, whose husband worked closely with Herod. The point of all of this is that the kingdom of God works in this beautiful way. It's, it's a kingdom for anyone. The Apostle Paul will later go on to say that the body builds itself up in love. And here, with Jesus and his followers, we see that these women had realized their gifting. They had realized who God had equipped them to be and how they could help and serve the needs of the community. Growing in knowledge, being taught the word of God, sitting under the teaching of Jesus, and then serving the community. Being part of the kingdom which grows and advances. Just like as Jesus ministers to the outcasts, he shows us that it is a kingdom for anyone. A kingdom for anyone. But while it is a kingdom for anyone, we see also that it is not a kingdom for everyone. It's a kingdom for anyone, but it's not a kingdom for everyone. There are large crowds gathering around, and based upon what Jesus has just said regarding this generation, remember he has said that this is the kind of generation that seeks a sign, this is the kind of generation that says no to every way which the kingdom of God is presented to it, kingdom or a generation that is like a child that just keeps saying no, 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 no. So we should be suspicious of these large crowds that are following Jesus. Why are they following Jesus? Do they really want to know what he is teaching? Are they there to see a spectacle? Why? 
In the midst of these large crowds, this is when Jesus speaks this parable. The parable of the sower, or really in Luke we could call it the parable of the seed. It's the seed that is the center of attention in this parable. There are four scenarios, three of which the seed does not produce a crop, one in which it does. Jesus does not begin this parable by saying the kingdom of God is like. He just goes in and he says it. You could see how it would be confusing to everyone, including the disciples, right? At the end of the parable, Jesus alludes to the prophet Isaiah, and this gives us some clues as to what Jesus means. At the end, he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And this allusion to Isaiah helps us understand why Jesus gives the response that he does. The disciples ask him, what does this parable mean? And he initially responds, not by telling them the meaning of the parable, but by telling them why he speaks in parables. Isn't that interesting? He says there in verse 8, The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom have been given to you, but to others I speak in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and that in hearing they may not understand. This allusion to the prophet Isaiah, what, what is Jesus doing insofar as he is saying, this is why I speak in parables. What can we learn by going back to Isaiah? In Isaiah chapter 6, we see that Luke is very interested in connecting the ministry of Jesus to Isaiah the prophet. But in Isaiah chapter 6, this is where Isaiah was first sent out, commissioned as a prophet, caught up into the throne room of God. And Isaiah 6, in verses 9 through 11, we read this. God says, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy. Blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Seems strange, doesn't it? And then Isaiah says, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste. The mission of Isaiah was to go and to speak the truth of the word of God and it was to be, in a sense, a dividing line and to show that God was justified in bringing his judgment upon his people. Because as Isaiah kept speaking the word of God, it would show how much God's people in general had rejected God. Not every single person, but most had. Made it clear that the judgment of God was rightfully falling on them. And this is connected to the parables of Jesus. The parables of Jesus have this dual effect, don't they? For those who have been given eyes to see, the depths of the kingdom of God are opened up. The truths of what the kingdom of God really is about are opened up to them. But to those who have not been given eyes to see, this is verbal garb, right? It, it, It doesn't make sense. What is Jesus saying? What is he talking about? But those who know that in Christ the kingdom of God has come, they are shown the depths of the kingdom of God. That is what Jesus is doing with these parables. But how is one given the knowledge to see that in Christ the kingdom of God has come? One passage that I think teaches us that is when Jesus asks Simon who he is. Simon, who do you say that I am? Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And what does Jesus say back? Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. But my Father, who is in heaven. 
The grace of God had been extended to Peter so that he was given eyes to see that in Christ the kingdom of God had come because there was mystery to this kingdom, wasn't there? That the kingdom was present in Jesus Christ. Salvation had come and yet the fullness of the kingdom had not yet been realized. So there was a difficulty in understanding this mystery. But to those who were given grace, just like Peter, they had been given eyes to see. Difficult to understand. The kingdom of God can be summarized really with two main ideas. New creation and the rule of God. New creation and God's rule of the world through Jesus Christ. But it's hard for people to understand because Jesus is not coming ruling with politics or the sword or with power. That's why in this parable there's this mystery of farming, right? The parable of the sower. The kingdom is said to advance through the seed of the word of God and to grow like a plant or a crop. It is slow. It is almost indistinguishable to the human eye. If you drive past a field where a crop grows every spring and summer and fall, if you drive past that field every single day, the growth in that field will be almost indistinguishable to the human eye. But if you, if you drive past that field once in April and once in September, you will see the massive difference, right? The growth of a seed that is planted in good soil. And this is the character of Jesus' kingdom. And Jesus is saying that this is a kingdom that can only be seen if God opens your eyes, just like he did with Peter. It is a gospel, it is a kingdom for anyone, but it is not for everyone. God opens our eyes and has to break through our sinfulness. His grace must be extended. This is what it means that the eternal purposes of God are accomplished through the word. And through the word, the spirit of God is carrying out the eternal will of God as the message of Jesus Christ is proclaimed. This is a doctrine that is unpleasant for people to believe. Why is it that people need God to open their eyes to see the truth of the gospel? Doesn't, doesn't that seem like it's, it's unpleasant to think about? Living here in, in a world where we have seen a couple of centuries where man is the measure of all things, it can indeed be hard to grapple with this doctrine. But the idea of God being sovereign in salvation, the idea that no one will see the truth of the kingdom of God without God opening their eyes first by his grace, comes at it from the wrong perspective if you are offended by it. See, it's not that God chooses only some to be saved. It's that God would choose anyone to be saved. And of course, we see in the parable of the sower that the call is to spread the seed everywhere in the world. The gospel is to be preached to everyone, held out to everyone, And as people come to faith in Jesus Christ, there you see the sovereign work of God. I think all of us who look to Christ, we can all admit that if if it were not for the grace of God, we would not be able to love Jesus as we ought. We would not be able to see our need for salvation. It's the eternal purposes of God that are carried out and accomplished through the word. There's a very famous Dutch theologian that said, The idea of God's sovereignty in our salvation is meant to comfort us because at no point in human history has has those chosen of God not been on the mind of God. 
At every point, God is working for those who are his own. It's also important to remember that this is a number of people that we don't know. We don't know whom God has chosen. Just like in today's passage, right? Jesus is being followed by the outcasts, the marginal in society. Jesus cleansed lepers and went and ate with tax collectors and sinners. At that time in the world, he welcomed women into the fellowship, taught them, assured them of their dignity and their worth. We don't know whom God might call to himself. And so the call is to spread the seed of the word of God abroad. This is what the gospel is all about. This is what ought to stun us about God's grace. It's a kingdom for anyone. It's not a kingdom for everyone. God calls us to spread the seed abroad. Salvation according to God's grace. It's a kingdom of sovereign grace. It's a kingdom for anyone. It's not a kingdom for everyone, but it is a kingdom of sovereign grace. We see as we look at what Jesus says about the meaning of this parable. He says that as the word of God is scattered abroad, there are four scenarios. The first one, the devil snatches the seed away, right? The seed that falls along the path, the devil comes and snatches the word from their hearts. In the Gospel of Luke, we have an example of this, don't we? Judas Iscariot, who sat under the teaching of Jesus, and yet the devil entered his heart, snatched the truth away, and used him as a tool for his own ends. The seed falls along the rocky soil. These are people who who cannot stand by the faith in times of trial. And sadly, we can think of examples of this in the Bible. We can think of examples of this in history, perhaps in our own lives, people that we have known. When they are met with the trials of life, they are unable to see the goodness of the kingdom of God in the midst of it. The third scenario, there is seed that falls among the thorns, and the thorny bushes choke it out. Jesus tells us this is those who are distracted by the the love of the pleasures of this life. In Luke chapter 14, there is this feast that is spread, and, and various people who are invited to the feast, but they do not come because they are weighed down by the cares and the pleasures of this world. And this is what it means to hold the gospel forth to a world and have a feast spread and say, this is the greatest thing you could ever know. This is the greatest truth you will ever learn when people being weighed down by the cares of this world. But then in the fourth scenario, we have the picture of a true and a vibrant faith. The parable of the sower teaches us that in the first three scenarios, the faithless go the way of the world, but the faithful hold on to the promise of a new world. And that is the call upon all of us today, to hold on to the promise of a new world. Farmers know that they are really at the mercy of God, don't they? Until the soil and do all the things that need to be done, but there comes a time where you put the seed into the ground and, and the growth has to come about by the means of something else. How much rain will you get? How much sunlight will you get? What kind of weather? Will you have droughts? Will your crops be washed away in too much rain? Really at the mercy of God. And that is the idea that is overshadowing this entire parable. The sovereignty of God. A kingdom of sovereign grace. The picture of vibrant faith is that 
When seed falls into good soil, the word of God brings forth a crop that is abundant, bearing a hundredfold. Those who have true and vibrant faith will not be choked out by the cares of this world. They will not be washed away in times of testing. Jesus is not telling us, be the good soil, right? That's not the point of the parable. We can't make ourselves good soil. It's all according to God's sovereign grace. God's sovereign purposes from all history are not up to us. The call upon the kingdom of God is to keep the faith. All that this does is that it, call, it makes us treasure the word of God. We think back to that painting that I used in the introduction, right? What makes this elderly woman and this young man join together in prayer in the midst of a diner? It's the conviction that God is working through their prayer, that God is ministering to them. What makes people read the word of God? What makes people pray over the word of God, memorize it, sit under the preaching and the teaching of it, gather around the word of God? It's because there is a conviction that there you will find the activity of God. There you will find God working. There you will find the spirit of God nourishing faith in us. The kingdom of God being one of new creation. There is where we see the spirit of God, right? In Genesis 1, the spirit of God hovers over the face of the waters. The spirit of God is the person of the Trinity who brings forth new creation life. And as we go to the word of God, there we will find it. There's a difference between this before and after the resurrection of Christ, isn't there? The Apostle Paul did not speak in parables, spoke by an open statement of the truth. And yet even then, not everyone was believing. Because unless God gives you eyes to see, you will not see. But what that does is for those who see that in Christ salvation has come. It gives you a humble assurance of God's grace, knowing that from all eternity past, God has been working to bring about your salvation. So treasure the word of God. Trust that in the word of God, you will find the activity of God and stand by that trust in times of tranquility and times of testing. This is what the parable of the sower teaches us. The kingdom of God is mysteriously advancing through humble means, not through the sword, not through worldly power or politics, through the word of God scattered abroad, which carries out and accomplishes God's sovereign purposes. What this does for all of us is that it reminds us to cling to these humble means of grace, cling to the fact that in the word of God, there we find God working on us. There we find the Spirit of God forming, shaping our hearts, calling us back to the glories of Jesus Christ, making us treasure all of those things that we find in God's Word. May, by His grace, may He do that in each of us. May we treasure His Word always, and may we look to His gospel and His eternal purposes for our assurance. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this reminder. We thank you for your word and your gospel. We thank you for the chance that you have given us today to install new officers in this congregation. A reminder of 
your kingdom going forth through humble means. May we always proclaim this word. May we always cling to it, treasure it in our hearts. Trust that we find the activity of God there in your word. Father, be glorified in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Let us respond together in song by singing all three verses of number 484, Lead On, O King Eternal. Let's stand together.